attempted to cough before every show. Just to scare people. Freak them out. Staring into the abyss of COVID-19 so you don't have to. Uh, who's kidding who? We're all staring into that abyss right now. This is hell today on This is Hell. When novel coronavirus 2019 finally has left us, it's finally gone. When we either have a vaccine or it burns itself out, waiting in a kind of viral limbo to be relaunched again at us in the future. When we step back out into that what we hope will be fresh air. We very may well be stepping out into the front lines of a war between those who want to force upon all of us some fictionalized version of a nostalgic pre-virus normal that was not anything close to normal when it was the new normal, and those who will adamantly refuse that recreation of the old normal and insist upon something else altogether that has nothing to do with normal because every new normal lately has sucked over and over, big time. Now we find ourselves at a place where far-right neo-fascist appearing governments are backing socialist-looking stimulus packages without a second thought to its impact on the bottom line, which is weird because these are the same governments that said we didn't have any money, so they needed to impose austerity and make all of us suffer. Apparently, all of that was completely unnecessary as we seemingly have the money to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We also find ourselves with a choice to make before they convince everyone that there is no alternative and we need, I don't know, how about Donald Trump as president for life? Yeah, the future is that freaking scary. In a few minutes, we'll have the return of researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven, who wrote the Roar magazine article, No Return to Normal, for a post-pandemic liberation. Today, new forms of solidarity, mutual aid, and common struggle are emerging in the pandemic. How will they shape tomorrow's struggles for a post-capitalist world? That article is a postscript to Max's upcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts, which is due out in May. Max's research chair in culture, media, and social justice at Lakehead University in Anishinaabe Aki, that is Thunder Bay, Canada, where he co-directs RIVAL, R-I-V-A-L, the reimagining Value Action Lab. This is Max's third appearance on This Is Hell. You may remember Max being on most recently back in September 2018, almost two years ago now, so maybe you don't remember. We talked to Max at that time about his then-just-published book, Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. You can follow Max on Twitter at Max Haven, that's H-A-I-V-E-N, and you can find out more about Max at his website, maxhaven.com. Dot com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Anything new by you, Alex, other than when you are done giving us some of the answers to this week's question from Al, can you turn off the heat, please? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know what else is causing shortness of breath? What I'm doing to manage being worried about having shortness of breath. Why? What's the deal? Are you not also getting high like five times a day? <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. You know, uh, the, one of the first days we were talking about washing our hands, you said uh, it feels like you have all these cuts all over your hands. Oh, no, I, I, that's actually a normal thing for me by this time at the end of the year, uh, but uh, it's real bad right You mean now. Dry, just from dry skin? Yeah. Oh, mine, I've actually, I actually find, have, keep finding cuts on my hands. Like, I didn't know I jabbed myself with something earlier in that day, and I'm like, "What? The, where's that cut from? I keep finding all these random little slices on my hands every time I wash them. It's kind of painful. This week's question from Elle is, do they owe us a living? Do they owe us a living? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Elle at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive containing 25 interviews from the past 20 years, first 20 years of this century. It's a great way to remember how hellish the pre-virus new normal used to be and why we do not want to go back to that nightmare. 
You can find the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century at our website, thisishell.com. When you click on support, which is where you can find all our swag, including the trucker cap, t-shirt, tote bags, coffee mugs, and the flash drive. In these, in those few times you are out of your home when you are not sheltering in place, but getting supplies to do so, make certain the few people who you actually may see know your feelings that this is hell by wearing a This Is Hell tee or hat or shopping with your This Is Hell tote bag. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, do they owe us a living? And again, everyone, there's two answers to this. Uh, It's posted right in the picture I posted with it. Brian S. says, sounds like there's work involved in this arrangement and I want no part of it. Close. Not exactly. Adam A. says, they, let me tell you something about them. They would love to see me cop out, love to see me dead, which is also quoting part of the song, but not quite, Adam. And then he wrote, what's up with all the crass this lately? Did one of them pass away? Or have you, like me, been revisiting the crass label disco since the release of the Cravats new album? I didn't know there was a new Cravats album. I don't know who the Cravats are, so I got to check that out, Adam. Uh, Mark is a- Penny Rimboat in a new band? I don't know. I'll take a look. Uh, Mark A.S. said, she should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So not, pe- people Not are, quite, Mark A.S. People are copying and pasting crass lyrics. Is that what we're uh, getting at? Uh, that was uh, from Macbeth. Okay. Uh, Jeremy T. says, objective... Not, are you sure that they didn't use those lyrics <laughs> he, in he, Well, he did cite it as Macbeth in the end. Uh, finally, uh, <laughs> Jeremy T. says, objectively, no. Subjectively, yes. That is, if you want to live in a functional egalitarian society, objectively, life is devoid of meaning. We give it meaning in the subjective, and what it... What meaning is, is entirely up to us, entirely up to us, barring the dualism of individualism, example choice, versus systematic pre, uh, genetic predispositions and outside influence. I feel like I screwed up this answer by taking it seriously. LOL. Again, everyone, I'm looking for one of two answers, and Crass gives you the one of two answers that I find acceptable. And I forgot to mention that earlier. Alex is going to throw every Crass album on the flash drive that you get of the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century. He's going to throw every Crass album on there as well because... If they sue us over that, it'd be great press. Hey, uh, if I use a pencil to turn off the heater, do I have to like discard that pencil, or am I safe to use it again? Oh, um, there is a—you uh, don't have to—but there's a stylus from the iPad on the round table by the front door. If you want to so use that, use that and throw it away. No, I mean that bad. <laughs> All right, let me go get that. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from Al following our guests. Don't forget, you can direct message us via Twitter with your answer to this week's question mail. You can also email it to us, and you can post it at our Facebook page. Our email address is chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, and our Facebook page is at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. We told you this is hell. How many times do we have to tell you this? We told you every day for the last, every week for the last 20, 23 years. For God's sake, how many times do we have to tell you? Before the virus, we told you. Before the virus, This Is Hell would have a meet and greet that is more a drink and think every Friday evening that we call office hours at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, the darkened, empty, abandoned bar waiting for all of us to return, Carrie's Lounge, which is in what used to be called Chicago's little Indian neighborhood up here around Western and Devon. The area is far more multi-ethnic than that, and only those who are from India certainly do not represent the entire neighborhood, so they've come up with a more generic name on Devon, which really doesn't say anything about the community whatsoever. Whatever. I don't know. Anyway, we would all hang out on Friday nights celebrating the weekend, making new friends, seeing old ones. People from all over the country would drop by from all over the world. And this year we moved it from Wednesdays to Fridays so people wouldn't, who couldn't show up in the middle of the week because it was a work night or a school night so they could join us, and many of them did. New people were dropping by, and it was awesome. We were having a different group of people on a regular basis, and it was really fantastic to meet new people. If you have hung out with us during office hours, you know how much fun, how enjoyable office hours can be. You also know how friendly and amazing the bartenders are at Carrie's. Nicole... Uh, Clay, Donna, Kim, Jonathan, they're all really great. They are now all out of work. 
The owner of Curry's, Pete, is helping them out temporarily, but without the bar making any money. That can't last very long. So Carrie's has a GoFundMe page to raise money for the bartenders who have been serving us for years at Carrie's Lounge. Please show your support for Carrie's bartenders who are now out of work, without a job, without a way to make a living due to COVID-19. Now, I seriously doubt the government will help out workers like the bartenders at Carrie's in any way that is commensurate with the pay they will have lost. Jobs like waiters and waitress, waitresses, waitron, if you will, and bartenders depend upon tips tips that, who's kidding who, are rarely actually claimed on taxes. That means if there's any help for those in the service industry, the government will likely not take it into account their unclaimed income. They definitely won't. This means even if and when they are compensated in any, compensated in any way for their lost work, it's not going to be enough. That's why we are asking you to please show your support for Carrie's Bartenders by going to the Carrie's Lounge GoFundMe page, which you can find at a link at facebook.com slash Carrie's Lounge, that's C-A-R-Y-S, or you can go to gofundme.com and search on Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S. This is your chance to show your appreciation to all the bartenders at Carrie's who have served us over the years. Besides, think of all the money you are saving in tips by not being able to spend money at Carrie's. Now send those tips to the bartenders virtually by going to the Carrie's Lounge Facebook page and clicking on the link there, or going to GoFundMe.com and searching on Carrie's Lounge. Obviously, it's not only the bartenders at Carrie's Lounge or bartenders in general or those in the service industry who are suffering financially from the COVID-19 pandemic. For many people, their job goes on almost as normal because they were already working the precarity of remoteness from their own home offices. For others, their jobs are easily turned into work that can be done from home. And there are those whose services are needed now more than ever, whose jobs just got a lot more intense, whether you are a cashier or someone who stocks the shelves at grocery stores. Somebody who facilitates food being delivered to people's homes or those on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19, the first responders and healthcare professionals, workers in some occupations are now working more and harder than ever. And that's what they are, workers. They are not team members as the establishment media is now trying to repackage the proletariat. No, we're no longer the working class whose time has been bought and paid for by bosses who now own the most val valuable resource all mortal humans have, our limited time on Earth. We are now team members who play together in hopes that we will win a few more scraps from the table that are discarded onto the filthy floor by the filthy rich. The boss is invisible when we are team members, a seemingly autonomous body whose shared goals are for the betterment of all of our teammates and certainly not going to the person who profits, the boss who benefits the most from our team's outstanding play in the market. Team members are not being laid off. The team didn't fail. They didn't lose. And now they're being re relegated to the lower division of unemployment. Workers lost their jobs. They were never team members in the first place. They were workers whose management tried to suppress wages as much as possible to get higher profits. And in doing so, they decided to change your name to team members. We know we can't go out to the air or restaurant, to the bar or restaurant anymore. We know this must be having a horrible impact on the lives and livelihoods of many in the industry. We also know we cannot travel as any travel to a distant place and back could bring with it the virus. That means a growing industry that more and more municipalities were depending upon before the virus for their economic life's blood, an industry that, as we've learned on This Is Hell over the last several months, has exacerbated inequality wherever it goes while pumping a little bit of desperately needed money into the local economy, an industry that creates a world of luxury and leisure for one class and squalor and poverty for the other, an industry that gives what little lifeline some impoverished communities need to eke out a living is going to shut down entirely and that industry that has been saving so many economies during this time of rampant inequality as we scramble for the crumbs from the one percent the industry of tourism which has been propping up neoliberalism is now if not in a coma dead so what happens in those communities that cannot support themselves and need outsiders to spend their money and leave their money in the area? What happens to them, especially when all their cute, quaint, unique mom-and-pop stores have been run out of business, run out of town by huge supermarket and grocery and hardware store chains that take what profits are made out of the community and back to their investors on Wall Street, leaving the community with empty pockets? 
Right now, those who do go on vacation every year to some small town to get away from it all, to get back to nature, we can't go and see what's happening there. We won't be able to see what's taking place in these tourist areas this summer if the shelter in place is still being enforced. Or worse, we get a complete lockdown that is enforced with actual force. Often these places have lost their local TV station, their local newspaper, local radio station as well, so there's no way to know what's happening in these communities who depend upon tourism at a time when travel is all but prohibited. Well, I can tell you what's happening in the small town we visit every year in their paper. COVID-19 isn't on the front page. It's buried in the bottom of page two with a small article. Warning, readers, not to overreact to the virus. Look, it was bad enough before, with tourism exacerbating inequality, with revenue being sucked out of these municipalities who are barely hanging on with tourist dollars, losing the needed public services because the tax revenue is no longer there. What will happen to all those people whose leaders decided that tourism was the only way they could survive? All these lousy tourist traps that snatched our money all these years are no longer accessible, no longer open, no longer available for dumping tourists extra income. Today we are asking you to donate to the Carrie's Lounge Bartender Fund by going to facebook.com slash Carrie's Lounge and clicking on the link there. Or you can just go to gofundme.com and search on Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S Lounge. But if you do go somewhere for vacation every year with your family or friends, as I do, if there are people who you know who depend upon your holiday for their livelihood during the virus, Let's be more than tourists to those communities. Reach out to them, ask what you can do to help those in need in areas where, without tourism, they fall from being only poor and into deep poverty. It's time we serve the people who have been serving us so diligently for so long. It's time we serve the servers. It's time every day becomes Boxing Day, the day after Christmas when servants get a day off and their masters bring them a gift box. Yes, every day is Boxing Day under the virus and for the rich, that means. This is hell coming up on This Is Hell. Competing forces await us when we finally end our self-isolation, when the virus is finally in our past, and that competition could get very ugly. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell and what's happening on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live-streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry, your eyewitness to grief. This is hell The future will not be like the past, even if those who want to make it look like the past try their hardest to do so. No, the future will not be the past normal, which was not at all that normal when they were calling it the new normal. The future will be something very different than than what our world was pre-virus, and here to help us consider those possible futures. Returning to This Is How researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven wrote the Roar magazine article, No Return to Normal, which is is a postscript to Max's upcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts due out in May. You can find out more about Max at his website, maxhaven.com, H-A-I-V-E-N. And you can follow Max on Twitter at Max Haven. This is Max's third appearance on This Is Hell. Welcome back to the show, Max. It's always a pleasure. You offer a quote at the very beginning of your article. Lyrics for a song that goes, strikes across the frontier and strikes for higher wage. Planet lurches to the right as ideologies engage. Suddenly it's repression moratorium on rights. What did they think the politics of panic would invite? Person in the street shrugs, security comes first, but the trouble with normal is it always gets worse which are from the song The Trouble with Normal from 1983 by Canadian singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn. Now, Max, I'm no fan of Bruce Coburn, but those lyrics are incredibly insightful, especially for 1983, and I guess I should have been listening closer back in the early to mid-'80s. But, Max, if, if normal always gets worse, why do we tolerate that continuing worsening of normal? Is this merely the boiling frog that would jump out of boiling water immediately to avoid being boiled alive while the frog being thrown in tepid, wa- tepid water, that's us, doesn't notice the slow rising of temperature until it's boiled alive? Is, is that it? What, what's the, what do you think makes us tolerate always these new normals just getting worse and worse and worse? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it, the sort of slow creep of uh, forms of economic authoritarianism and exploitation mean that whenever we seem to look up, we notice for a moment that things have gotten worse and we don't know how we got here. Uh, I think beyond that, I, I think in general, people are afraid. Sort of the neoliberal capitalist order in which we live has told us that there is no alternative and has treated those who fight for alternatives rather roughly. So, you know, uh, through economic abandonment or criminalization. So people are, are have been fearful of of uprising for a long time. They've been told it's not even worth doing. But I think there's something else going on here as well, underneath the repression and underneath the kind of normalization, which is that uh, I think it's not uncommon for us, especially to the extent that we live in alienating and uh, highly exploitative circumstances, to in a certain way become fixated on or come to, in a weird way, love the conditions under which we're suffering. Uh, because to take a stand against them would be to abandon what we have made of ourselves in those conditions. We build ourselves, we build our sense of community, our sense of uh, personality, our sense of agency in times of extremely constrained freedom. And when there is a gap and we see freedom before us in a certain sense, it's it's easy to choke in that moment, and I think that happens on a on a on a regular basis, which has meant that in various moments of crises in the past, uh, the opportunity has unfortunately not been seized, and we haven't seen the kind of shift in society that would prevent catastrophes uh, like the one we're encountering now from from uh, arising. Do we choke in that face of freedom because? Not that we can't do or that we won't do something about it, but we can't do something about it. Are we are we powerless or are we convinced that we are powerless? We're more powerful than we can possibly imagine when we work together. Uh, but that power is terrifying because we have the power as human beings uh, working cooperatively with other species to completely reshape our world and to rebuild society uh, along the terms that we choose. But that's a huge responsibility, and it's a huge responsibility um, that we've in some way lost touch with that kind of power. Um, so I think it's a very difficult one. You know, if we, if you put, uh, you know, and this often happens in crises and catastrophes, if you put people together and say you have to solve this problem now, often a, a large percentage of people who have been habituated by an authoritarian society will look for an authoritarian leader to solve that problem, even if what that authoritarian leader does inevitably is simply command other people to use their labor to solve the problem. You said this is a huge responsibility, so I just want to make this point. So are we, what would you say to somebody who says, well, humans are just lazy. They're just lazy. They don't want the freedom that they uh, want, that they really you know, say they demand, but they're just too lazy to take on that kind of huge responsibility. If that is indeed true, then uh, we have a lot of problems. I would say that if you raise people from birth to accept essentially a totalitarian uh, situation of the economy, which is to say that we raise people to uh, sort of take their roles in a capitalist economy and prepare themselves for a life of exploitation, which is essentially what we do in most of the formal schooling and through our popular media and through generally the ways that we treat children, then of course they're going to react that way in a moment of crisis. But we have, I think, incredible capacities to cooperate, to make decisions collectively, to take care of one another. And I don't think that that the the our our when we when we fail to show that those powers, it's not because of laziness. It's simply because we've been told our entire lives that we are powerless and and essentially can do nothing more than obey commands. You know, the funny thing about laziness is I'm not sure that it's necessarily a big problem. I mean, humans, if humans indeed like to conserve energy and have a nice time, then that's a good thing. And we should build a society that makes that possible. I like that idea. Uh, you also mentioned this kind of, you do this, this really great analogy, that we're in a kind of self-imposed winter, staying inside because of the weather or virus outside, and we cannot wait until the spring of returning outdoors without the worries that uh, the virus has with it. What happens if we don't change? What happens if due to nostalgia potentially inflating how great the time prior to the virus really was? 
what if we insist upon going back to that old normal? And can we? Well, the problem, as we as we said uh, in the in the intro here, is that it always gets worse. And the reality is that some of us uh, probably will get to go back to normal if we if we go down that route. But it'll be a smaller percentage of us than even enjoyed what few freedoms and benefits capitalism uh, already wrought. It'll be a much smaller percentage. Um, and you know, if we don't if we don't fight back and we don't de- de- uh, sort of demand a different system then we'll all still keep playing the game where we all hustle and try and sell our labor power as best we can or or try and compete with one another for a few of the spaces left on the lifeboat of the sinking ship of capitalism. But is that the sort of world we want? I mean, essentially, if we go back to normal, we're going to have another crisis like this within the next decade or 15 years at, at very least. Maybe it'll be a disease. Maybe it'll be the catastrophe we know is unfolding through global warming. Maybe it'll be uprisings. Maybe it'll be a whole number of things that we can't predict. I mean, we essentially have an economy right now that's based, at least in its upper echelons, on millions and millions of individual actors, most of whom are supercomputers, running incredibly uh, sophisticated uh, probabilistic calculations of risk. Right. The entire financial sector is basically the best supercomputers designed by the best minds humanity has to offer running constantly um, these calculations of risk. And none of them saw this coming. Um, So I think we can expect that ultimately uh, we're going to face another catastrophe uh, of this magnitude unless we completely reorganize how we uh, how we have shaped society and decide to prioritize care and creating the resources to to deal with situations like this first and foremost. Is this then the moment for a real social transformation, a revolution, and one way or the other, either it being fascist or socialist, will there be one? I don't know. I mean, um, on, of course, I would hope that there would be some sort of like socialist style revolution and we could redistribute the wealth of society more equally and uh, in less uh, harmful and um, antagonistic ways to people. I'm fearful that it will present an opportunity where people will rush into the arms of authoritarianism, whether that's kind of a state authoritarianism that's reminiscent of fascism or simply more market authoritarianism of further austerity and neoliberalism. I think really much depends on if we can sort of shrug off our sense of fear and anxiety and hopelessness and and powerlessness and actually realize the incredible potential that we have, uh, not only as a sort of species, but a species with incredible tools to uh, shape our world and to work with other forms of life to shape our world. So I hope that things will work out much better. And and the, the point of the article is to say we have a few weeks or months, many of us, um, to take a take a breath, uh, if you'll excuse the metaphor, in a time when we're dealing with a pneumonia-like uh, medical emergency, um, and to really get ready for the struggles to come. Now, I say that while also wanting to recognize how many of us are still working in one way or another, and I'm thinking about all of the parents out there who are working really hard to you know, manage and, and keep their kids entertained and also calm in this moment. I'm thinking about the service sector workers, thinking about the frontline healthcare workers and the farmers who are all working full tilt to keep society going at this moment. But still, I think in the, in the suspension of normal that we are in right now, we have an, a once in a lifetime opportunity to pause, take a stance and get ready for what's to come. And many of the people are not getting paid any wages, which is propping up capitalism, at least to a certain extent, when they are doing social reproduction, like things like parenting that is being needed more now, more than ever. Um, And uh, I was thinking about how you were saying the fear of freedom, you know, freedom can be very terrifying. Change can be very terrifying. What we see with liberals here in the United States when it comes to centrist Democrats the kind of people who are supporting Joe Biden. That clearly is the group of people who do fear change. They fear the change that Bernie Sanders was about to bring about. Given those circumstances, what do you expect from liberals in the United States in the post-virus world if they fear change? Uh, I'd like to say change, but I think, to be honest, probably more of the same. 
Um, I think many of those liberals, at least among a certain segment of them, tend to be uh, folks who feel that their personal fate is going to be relatively fine for the rest of their lives. And it, it you know, it's it's not a coincidence that many of the people who tend to support um, centrist at, uh, causes tend to be older. And let me just take a moment by saying that, like, by any global or meaningful standard, these people aren't centrist. They're incredibly far right. What what uh, Sanders is proposing, as Noam Chomsky and many others have pointed out, is basically post-war Keynesianism. It is not a radical agenda by any reasonable stretch of the imagination. So, in fact, we should be speaking about, you know, the, the proverbial um, Biden supporters as reactionaries. But I digress. Uh, I think that many of those folks essentially realized that within the system, at least as it existed before the pandemic, that their lives would essentially continue to be relatively comfortable, at least by global standards, uh, for his term and for the rest of their prospective lives. Maybe that's changing now because I think there's a, a huge dose of fear that, in fact, the neoliberal normal has resulted in a situation where, for instance, the United States has more bombs than ventilators. Um, <laughs> You know, so uh, maybe people will be sort of shocked into a sense that a radical change is necessary. But such power structures die hard. The United States has more bombs than ventilators. That should be a twist off knowledge. One of the uh, trivia things that we often offer here on the show. I, I hate the term X. I hate the term the new normal because it seems to erase everything that is wrong with the new normal as if we are supposed to accept it, tolerate it as if there's nothing we can do about it. It's out of our control and there's no alternative in any way. Am I reacting, overreacting, or do you think there's something really wrong with accepting the term, the new normal? Yeah, I think we shouldn't accept it. Uh, it has a nice kind of alliterative quality, but uh, I think you're right. I think it, it, in a way, it gives us one of those particular um, linguistic tools that is so common, I think, since the 1980s in our sort of weirdly postmodern times, where we get to acknowledge something as actually existing, but also get at the same time to be somewhat cynical about it. Because nobody says like, oh, this is just great. It's the new normal. It's always like, oh, now we have the new normal. But it's always the, the implicit thing is always like, we acknowledge that it's bad and that it's worse. And we also acknowledge that we can't do anything about it. I'm starting to wonder if we have more nuclear warheads than bombs, or than ventilators, but I don't think that's the case. Uh, we are speaking with researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven, who wrote the Roar magazine article, No Return to Normal. The article that we are discussing is a postscript to Max's upcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts, which is due out in May, and we hope to have Max back on the show to discuss that. You write... On the one hand, there will be those who seek to return us to the order of global revenge capitalism to which we can had become accustomed, a nihilistic system of global accumulation that appears to be taking a needless, warrantless vengeance on so many of us, though without any one individual intending any particular malice and one which breeds the worst kind of revenge politics. What do you mean by revenge politics? Do you think that's a better descriptor than the more popular term of partisan politics. Is this more about vengeance than partisanism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with partisanship. If you're a partisan for something that is good, um, there's a kind of weird way that terms like partisanship or populism actually simply normalize the, um, the kind of uh, unspoken violence of capitalist, quote unquote, liberalism, uh, which positions itself as the center and can only sustain itself uh, in this position at the center by defaming uh, things on its left and its right, without, of course, recognizing that the thing on its, things on its right are talking about genocide and destruction and disposability of human, pe human beings, and those things on its left are calling for things like free healthcare or you know, treating people relatively equally. So I think this uh, approach to speak about populism or, or um, uh, partisanship is not so helpful. And it's why I try and introduce in this book, the concept of revenge politics and revenge capitalism. I see revenge politics and this kind of reactionary authoritarian wave that's sweeping the world right now in the United States and elsewhere 
as essentially a kind of reflex or expression of uh, on, on the level of politics of what is actually occurring on the level of the capitalist economy as a whole, which is that that economy itself, without anyone necessarily intending it, is taking this kind of needless, warrantless vengeance on humanity through things like rendering whole populations surplus and therefore left to die, or for instance, through imposing unpayable debts on whole populations and on so many of us, or in terms of, you know, basically opening up the sphere of the mind to capitalist exploitation through the kind of neurohacking that is now being developed by Silicon Valley tech firms and on and on. So there's something about the way that capitalism is working right now that is in and of itself nihilistic and at a dead end. And that has its expression in the realm of politics, unfortunately, mostly in terms of awakening, fortifying, and indeed often funding the worst kind of right-wing uh, revanchist politics. But also, I argue in the book, it might have the potential to awaken what I call an avenging imaginary, which is what I hope would ha animate our visions of what a future society might look like. And just to make that clear, I'm not speaking necessarily about, you know, revenge against individual capitalists or politicians. I don't actually think that's particularly useful. Um, I'm speaking instead about avenging ourselves on the systems that have made us so disposable, that have sown the seeds of, uh, of racism, sexism, homophobia between us have made an incredible, beautiful, rich world so denuded of life in so many ways and that have essentially stolen our powers for so long. You write that the debts of the pandemic, literal and figurative, will have to be repaid. Considering that avenging imaginary, will the same people who always repay the debt put up with repaying the debt again and do the same people who always collect on the debt that collect no matter the disaster or its cost in human lives, will we again, will the poor again be bailing out the rich, be paying for the disaster? If we don't make a different decision, if we don't organize against it, then yes, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. And I think it's going to happen essentially in this way. I mean, governments around the world right now, including the United States, which just announced its multi-trillion dollar bailout package, are essentially, it's a little more complex than this, but essentially they're going to borrow most of that money for a bailout from banks and financial institutions. Uh, and they're going to use it to keep the capitalist economy afloat uh, in this moment of crisis. And to a certain extent, they have very few options in the sense that they still need to keep food moving around the country and keep the lights on and the heat on and keep people getting paid and all the rest. But the reality is that after this, uh, the immediate moment of the pandemic is over, those from whom they've borrowed the money are going to come calling. Uh, for their debts to be paid back and those debts will be paid back through more austerity and more neoliberal deregulation They're going to be paid back ultimately on the level of everyday life by workers working longer harder and for less um, And to a certain extent That will be the reality unless we are able to mobilize to for instance Say that we want many of the emergency measures that are slowly being introduced in various jurisdictions during the pandemic crisis to be essentially continued and to become the platform for a new kind of economy and society. And those include, for instance, a hiatus on rent. They include perhaps something like a basic guaranteed income, but only if it's accompanied by uh, basic guaranteed and excellent quality public services. That might include things like the nationalization of key industries, which have shown themselves to be completely useless and remiss in the moment of pandemic. It might include uh, all sorts of free services, which hitherto have had user fees attached to them. So there's a sense that already in this crisis, we're seeing what it would mean to call the debts in ourselves, those of us proverbially at least at the bottom of society, and say, in fact, our society and our the, the powers that be owe us, we don't owe them, and we will not pay afterwards for this crisis. But that requires a huge amount of social mobilization. Do you think that's where we will be standing post-crisis, that it will be, the competition will be between grassroots, bottom-up socialism and top-down fascism? Because during COVID-19 and in reaction to it, how easily could any, any nation that currently claims to be a democracy simply slide into authoritarian dictatorship? I mean, considering the rise of far-right leaders around the world, Trump, Bolsonaro, uh, Boris Johnson, Orban, Duterte, Modi, even Netanyahu, 
aren't we in a position far more situated for the top-down fascism to be the post-virus <laughs> normal than any kind of grassroots or radical bottom-up socialism might be? It is a huge danger, a huge danger. But let's I, and as much as I think we need to attend to that and we need to fight it in every possible way, we also need to be very attentive to the fact that in almost all of the countries you've listed, there remains a very powerful, very established uh, and very influential um, liberal capitalist class who don't like the fascists and the authoritarians, who feel like the country has been stolen from them and who are eager in their own revanchist way to come back and seize power and control. And they, so we are looking at uh, the next few years where we're gonna see an intensification of a battle between the far right sort of neo-fascist tendency, but then also a very dangerous attempt to return us to a kind of older normal. And if we're very lucky, that, that liberal normal may look like post-war Keynesianism. If we're very unlucky, it'll look like something that's led by the tech sector, where the welfare state is essentially replaced by uh, sort of benevolent algorithms uh, that, that promise to deliver more efficiency in the provisioning of public services, but in fact are simply a kind of uh, cooperation between the state and corporations. So I think we're in a very dangerous moment and it becomes more and more important to be able to develop a language and movements that can refuse both no to the new authoritarianism and no to the new capitalism. We have a world that we deserve to win and that we, neither of these systems are necessary. Um, so let's now kind of dedicate ourselves to figuring out how we're, what we're going to demand that really puts people first and doesn't trust the management of society to either technocrats or authoritarians. And let's begin to demand it, not only in terms of rhetoric, but also in terms of actions. Tuesday's New York Times ran a front page uh, article in their business section with the headline, Big Tech May Emerge Stronger Than Ever, uh, after the virus, obviously. Living during coronavirus means more time and money spent on devices of all types, and that's good for Silicon Valley, was the sub-headline. Is it already too late? Is there anything we can do or is it certain that post-virus Silicon Valley will have more power, more control over our lives than pre-virus? Will we wax nostalgic for the pre-virus surveillance state that we had in the past? I, you know, I mean, it's, very, it's a very powerful sector, um, but they're not that powerful. I mean, you know, if we compare them to the major industries which have dominated capitalism in the past, uh, they're not that uh, you know, uh, dangerous or powerful, it's not that difficult for a government to seize their assets or to uh, pass regulations that impinge upon the tech sector. It's, you know, compared as it was to, for instance, major industries, let's say in the period of the 19th century, or compared to the huge uh, industrial monopolies of the mid 20th century. The tech sector essentially is a bunch of, uh, you know, apart from some very substantial infrastructure that they control is is mostly uh, human capital and copyrights and proprietary data. So, you know, when compared with the power of massive social movements and even when compared with the power of a state that chose to do something about it, this is not, it's not like we're facing down Darth Vader here. Uh, we've sort of projected in our mind because their tools are so ubiquitous and we have become so attached to them that these tech corporations are, you know, uh, now exist, you know, they're, they're in Mount Olympus and us mere mortals could never touch them. But they're, they're mortals like everyone else. And their technologies, in fact, are in some ways easier to seize for common or public purposes than other industries uh, in the past. So I think we should keep that in mind. I'm not saying the fight will be in any way easy, but we should we should make the demand for the world that we want and then figure out how to make it possible rather than sort of saying at the beginning, uh, you know, these guys have, you know, can track our every movement. Uh, you also write that the quarantined and semi-isolated are discovering, using digital tools, new ways to mobilize to provide care and mutual aid to those in our communities in need, which is fantastic. But are we potentially inadvertently making the mistake of using the same social industry platforms that might be turned against us? Does depending upon Silicon Valley technology, even for organizing against Silicon Valley, 
empower Silicon Valley? I mean, I think that's always a risk. Uh, and movements have developed a series of um, precautionary protocols for dealing with that. So some movements are doing initial outreach to people through the media that they know, the social media they know, through Facebook, through Twitter, through Instagram, et cetera, but then trying to get people to transition off those onto other platforms that are either sort of uh, bespoke designed uh, or that are available and have various forms of encryption and security. Other times I think movements have made the decision that uh, you know these technologies essentially are so germane to the way that people live their lives that it's very difficult to get people to detach from them. And the bigger challenge right now is to get them to detach from a sense of hopelessness, alienation, and helplessness. Um, so I think in some ways that's a question more for uh, organizers and activists on the ground, the extent that they want to use these technologies. With all due respect to my many, many friends who've been working for many years to fight the tech companies and build autonomous platforms. I don't think we should necessarily wait until everyone starts using an open source and uh, encrypted version of Linux and email to, how, to kick off a revolution. You write that already in the state of emergency that the crisis has unleashed. We are seeing extraordinary measures emerge that reveal that much of the neoliberal regime's claims to necessity and austerity were transparent lies. How do the measures that are being taken right now prove the rationalization for austerity? That is, for not spending on social services, for not having universal health care, for not funding education, for not raising the federal minimum wage, for undermining public sector unions, for allowing infrastructure to crumble, for not being able to do what we can about climate change because it's too expensive, and for many other reasons. How does stimulus during crisis prove that austerity and everything it forwarded were lies? I think they reveal that ultimately all of these things are choices about how we're going to organize society and how we're going to organize human cooperation and human labor. Uh, and also, I should mention the labor of non-humans as well, ranging from you know computers and, and robots to uh, animals, plants, and other forms of life. This is There's been a decision that's been made about how all of this cooperation is going to be organized. And the decision that was made that we never knew was made was that essentially we would leave this up to the market and we would leave the market up to a handful of incredibly powerful corporations and individuals with some sort of bare minimum of a state to make sure that those individuals and corporations didn't actually completely ruin the planet uh, and, and sacrifice the human life that they depended on. Uh, and now what's being revealed is that other choices can be made. If in an emergency, we can begin to offer all sorts of things for free. If we can recognize that rent is not a necessity, but an option. If we can understand that healthcare is not something that needs to be provided by private companies, but can be offered as a public service. And on and on and on, all of the different things we're discovering in this moment of crisis, then it punctures a hole in the entire narrative of legitimation for the uh, system that's existed for the last 40 years, which has told us that only markets can fairly and efficiently organize society and human cooperation. That means, I think, that there is a, a very rare opportunity to say that we could, in fact, organize all of that social cooperation differently that we could put it towards different ends and that the way in which we cooperate could be different, that we could cooperate as human beings, not through the wage relationship of, you know, being employed by someone and showing up every day and making their contribution to humanity largely through being told what to do by someone who then takes the fruits of your labor and goes on their yacht vacation with it. But instead, we could organize human cooperation towards the enrichment of everyone on some level, that we could create a situation where we wouldn't uh, render ourselves susceptible to the spread of these virulent epidemics, which come from so many factors that have been sort of uh, built in society through the last 40 years of neoliberal austerity and sort of constant international competition. That told, so certain, that told yeah. us only only markets, only markets can, that, that's the only solution. Do you think people have died, especially here in the United States, because the Republican Party, because President Trump was waiting for the markets to solve the problem? Did the markets fail us, leading to deaths? And this is the 
potential end of the rationalization that markets can be our savior. Is that what the Republican Party, is that what Fox News is doing right now? Just waiting for the markets to fix all of the problems as people die. Yeah, I mean, let me say two things about that. The first is that I think what is happening among the sort of far right, both in the United States and the United Kingdom and Brazil, is they're making a kind of calculus. There's a lot of buffoonery going on on the front, but there are smart people in behind. And essentially, I think their calculus is this. There's a goal, this is from their perspective, which is basically sort of um, a, a sort of light form of fascism. All that exists in the world is the struggle of people against one another. And the only container of that struggle that makes sense is the kind of uh, bully boy nation state. So essentially, they all think, oh, we're seeing a global pandemic. We need to put our nation state in the best position to compete with other nation states when this pandemic is over. How are we going to do that? Well, if you're totally cynical about it, as they indeed are, then getting rid of older and disabled adults in your population is generally good for a completely unscrupulous, fascistic capitalist economy. Making sure that your economy gets back to work and starts being economically productive before other economies, especially since the crisis first hit China and they're looking like they're going to be the first to recover, would be extremely important if your worldview is one of the constant war of all against all. So from a deeply cynical perspective, yes, we're all being put on the altar of the capitalist economy. Uh, and I think that the, the only difference is that some people in those uh, horrendous governments are slightly more honest about it than others. Now, but the second thing I would say is we've been on the altar of being sacrificed for the capitalist economy for a very long time. And it didn't just happen under the Republicans in the United States. There were many, many people sacrificed on the altar of capitalist accumulation under the Obama years, for instance, where millions of people were deported and where hundreds of thousands of people died of completely unnecessary causes in order to make sure that the economy didn't feel any harm. All around the world, people are on the sacrificial altar of global capitalism constantly. And it's estimated that already, you know, the, the number of people who've died in the same period that COVID-19 has been around from completely preventable causes, including malaria, malnutrition, diarrhea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are, are extremely high. So ultimately, what is happening in this moment is that many more of us who enjoyed the privileges of either being white or being citizens of wealthy, which is to say imperialist nations, or who happen to be middle class or aspiring to be middle class, are finally realizing just how disposable we all are in the eyes of the system. Many other people have been disposable for a very long time. So should we all, you know, anybody who's a socialist, let's say, should they all be very excited? Should they all be very elated and happy that Trump or whoever the right wing leader who is now embracing socialist looking policies, whoever you want to name, should socialists worldwide be jumping with joy now that the right is acting like they're socialists? Or should they be concerned that this is what one of your concerns with concerns, which is the blurring of the line between humanitarianism and authoritarianism. Yeah, I'd be very concerned. I mean, the strong tendency so far in the new authoritarian right has been their incredible love of free markets and of free market competition. But let's not forget that the original fascists were, uh, you know, had uh, evolved out of kind of a bastardization of socialist principles. The idea that the the race and the nation needed to be firmly managed and the economy needed to be firmly managed by a kind of um, uh, unapologetic uh, leadership. So there is a very strong tendency within these uh, political currents to marshal state ownership of the means of production or corporatist relationships between government and corporations or sort of authoritarian measures uh, around the economy as a means to uh, expedite their uh, agenda. I mean, this is one of the things that Rosa Luxemburg, among others, warned us about the capitalist economy, that capitalism necessarily generates uh, contradictions within itself and crises within itself so much that it needs to be rescued at various moments by the authoritarian state. And it sort of, in a sense, put, capitalism puts itself in escrow for a moment where it says, you know, like, oh, we really screwed this up. Uh, 
we need someone to come in and, and save us. And that's the time when they call in the authoritarians to clean house and then back comes capitalism. And what does clean house mean? It means passing new laws that regulate trade union activity. It means uh, regulating public protest. It means getting rid of undesirable populations, et cetera, et cetera. And these are the things that if we don't mobilize now, we could likely see in a post-pandemic uh, moment. You know, it's not unthinkable that in the name of preserving uh, and returning the economy, the capitalist economy to health, the American or other governments might, for instance, trade, uh, might uh, suspend collective bargaining or the right to strike. Why wouldn't they? You know, so it, there's going to be a very dangerous and important moment coming so, where movements need to come together and be, be such a force in the streets and in society that that can be refused. Or suspend a presidential election with people being fine with that because your approval ratings have gone up as the media is telling everyone that you're doing a great job in confronting the crisis even though people are dying while you're ignoring it. You, I was also wondering how where, how where do you think the public is that there will be a new, new normal when the virus ends, that returning to normal will be brutal and in the end impossible? In a weird way, I think... I would answer it two ways. On the first level, uh, I think as your question anticipates, people are really not aware of it on some level. Um, that I, I don't think people have a real sense of the stakes of this moment, which is that we're one of those, we seem to be, I shouldn't say we are, I think we are, I assume we are at a moment of uh, a critical moment, which to draw on the kind of Greek roots of critical is the moment of decision, the moment of, of, uh, of separation, where we could go one path or another. And I don't think people are necessarily aware that those sorts of choices now face us and that we have options, that we don't have to go back to normal. But the second thing I think I would say is that in a weird way, a lot of people are aware of it. And I think they're aware of it in the sense that for the vast majority of people, no matter who gets elected, even before this pandemic, things were just going to get worse. You know, whether they elected Clinton or Trump, whether they elect Biden or Trump, things are just going to get worse. And when you limit people's understanding of what politics is or could be to the electoral realm, they're right. That is the case for the vast majority of working class, especially racialized working class people in America. Things were going to get worse either way. They're getting worse faster under Trump, but they were going to get worse. And so people have a sense that the new normal is going to be worse. I think what the challenge is is to say that we could change directions right now. And I think it's out of that cynicism that people feel that no matter what happens, it's just going to get worse that they tend to turn towards either not voting or voting at least for the candidate that gives expression to their pain if they do nothing to change it, to sort of paraphrase Walter Benjamin. One last question for you, Max. We have been speaking with researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven, who wrote the Roar magazine article, No Return to Normal. And right there at the end, he was quoting Walter Benjamin, who's been quoted quite extensively recently on our show. The article that we have been discussing is a postscript to Max's upcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, the Ghosts of Empire, the Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts, which is due out in May. And Max, will you come back on our show so we can discuss that book with you, sir? It would be my pleasure. Uh, you can follow Max on Twitter at Max Haven, H-A-I-V-E-N. You can find out more about Max at MaxHaven.com. As we do with all of our guests, Max, as you know, our final question is the question from <laughs> hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. So this is very selfish of me, but while we, reading your book, I kept thinking something incredibly selfish, which is exactly why, <laughs> what I shouldn't be doing. You know, I should be thinking selflessly, collectively, working in mutual aid with others, but instead I thought selfishly the future you suggest is not only very possible, but very, very, very scary, very scary, say, for those who have been manufacturing dissent since 1996 here on This Is Hell. How frightened should I be about the fascist future that is not only possible, but I'm telling you, it's very, very likely, as somebody who not really makes a living manufacturing dissent, how frightened should I be for our future? Well, uh, I wish I had something reassuring and optimistic to say, 
I think that in an unprecedented way, well, I wouldn't say unprecedented, in a very uh, exciting way, the United States society is more mobilized and more accepting of socialist and generally uh, liberatory ideas than they've ever been. There's a higher level of grassroots mobilization than there's been in a very long time. Uh, the opportunities are abundant. Uh, and we have also coming towards us in the near future, very important splits between elites and different factions of capital. And those present great opportunities for movements to make huge gains. I'm not sure that we're necessarily going to, at this moment in history, go either full fascism or full, you know, automated luxury communism. Uh, lots can happen and none of us can predict what's going to happen. So if there's anything we've learned from this pandemic, it's that we need to give up a little bit on the, the sense of control and certainty that we might have had beforehand and accept that things will play out as they will play out. Max, I really appreciate you being back on the show. You know we're going to be bugging you in May so we can have you on to discuss your new book, Revenge Capitalism, that's being published by Pluto Press. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's always great to hear from you. That was a fantastic conversation. I truly appreciate it. Thanks so much. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. I always like saying that tagline right after we have a very serious guest on the show. And by the way, I, I totally don't believe that we're going to be able to confront neoliberalism when you have the establishment media not mentioning that austerity, globalization, deforestation, financialization, commodification, all the aspects of neoliberalism that led to the COVID virus. I don't, you know, if you're, you're not going to talk about any of the real reasons, all the structural reasons that caused this virus, yeah, I really don't see it future that's going to be all that great i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz producing this week's show is alex jerry this week's question from Mel is do they owe us a living do they owe us a living you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio or you can email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins the this is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive containing 25 interviews from the first 20 years of this century. It's a great way to remember how hellish the pre-virus new normal used to be and why we do not want to go back to that nightmare. You can find the This is Hell Guide to the 21st Century at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support, which is where you can find all our swag, including trucker cap, t-shirt, tote bags, coffee mugs, and the flash drive. In those few times you are out of your home when you're not sheltering in place, but getting supplies to do so. Make certain the few people who you may see know your feelings that this is hell by wearing a This Is Hell tee or hat or shopping with your This Is Hell tote bag. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, do they owe us a living? Do they owe us a living? <laughs> There's two answers I'm looking for here. Laura E. says, there shouldn't be a they to begin with. Dan K says, do they owe us their lives? <laughs> Kyle J says, no, because they didn't earn what they have. It's ours anyway. These are all good answers. These are, These are not the right answers. <laughs> Sheldon B says, well, they did try to prevent my mother's abortion. So yes, they do. Reference philosopher Benatar's books and article arguing that it is better to not have ever existed. Well, Almost. <laughs> Brian H posted a YouTube video to the crass song that I also posted which is, do they owe us a living? So maybe that answer contains what I'm looking for. Very close. I'm looking for two answers here. Jared S. says, no, they don't. We have to take it. Josh J. says, they owe us everything. Barrett M. says, they owe us crass albums for sure. <laughs> Kelly H. Now says, that's a good answer. Kelly H. says, and what are we going to do unless they are? And Mark A.C. says, they owe us more than that. None of them would be sitting comfortably where they are without the rest of us propping up their soft arses with our calloused hands on our calloused knees, sneezing into our calloused elbows. Justin M. says, we owe ourselves the abolition of they. Joanne C. says, take it from them. And Garrett S. says, yes, but they owe us their labor in a gulag even more. A uh, little uh, hammer and sickle Unicode symbol. Again, there's only two answers I'm looking for here. And I think Crass already answered that. You know, uh, we were planning on making This Is Hell surgical masks like three months ago. And our merchandise person actually had found some surgical masks, and we just decided it was just... Oh, damn, she still got those masks? <laughs> yes. I got an EIO Tamara an email anyway. We, uh, so we decided that it was just maybe a little tacky, 
But yeah, we should email her and see if she still has the surgical masks to see if we can put the This Is Hell logo on it. But now I'm starting to think, the reason I thought of it is because I, I kind of want to have a sticker now that's just a red circle with a line through it that just says they. <laughs> I kind of like that idea. Uh, that, that, that could uh, turn out bad real fast. <laughs> I know. Alex will have the rest of the answers to this week's question from Mel, and we'll announce this week's winner on our show tomorrow, Thursday. But actually, Alex will be announcing this week's winner. I'm going to abdicate my responsibility in picking our favorite this week to Alex because he clearly is expecting a certain answer. And I'm hoping I win. That's really why I kind of want to win one of these flash drives. Leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or email it to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com, or direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Thursday's live streaming show here on at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Our old friend Dave Buchan is back. Well, not back. He's in Puerto Rico. We're going to be talking to him live from San Juan and a moment of truth from Jeffy. And uh, this is part of, I, we're going to try to do this, I think, every Thursday. We're going to be talking about COVID a lot, and it's usually going to be pretty depressing. So I think we're going to check in with our friends from around the world, uh, correspondents who've been working on the show for a long time in different places, and uh, have them report back to us. So Dave will be talking to us from San Juan on this Thursday. And then next Thursday, I already got Todd Williams, uh, one of my favorites ever on the show, to come back. And he's going to be talking on the uh, COVID live from Budapest. And uh, we've got people like Mikkel Mickelson in Sweden, Laura Carlson in Mexico, Brian Muir in uh, Brazil. We have people all over the world. Mark Flurry in uh, South Korea. So we are, right? Isn't that where he lives? Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to get, I'm actually going to try to get Mark the next week. Okay, so yeah, we're, we're going to have a lot of our correspondents on the show to tell us what's happening in their neck of the woods when it comes to COVID. Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to find out who has won this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex for producing. Thanks to Max Haven for being back on our show. Make sure to check out his article at Roar, Roar Magazine, No Return to Normal, and look for him to return to our show in May when he'll talk about his new book, Revenge Capitalism. Also, thanks to Theron Humiston for doing all that he does when it comes to actually engineering the show. Alex is the producer. Don't forget, the planet's on fire. So yes, this is hell. Hey, you got a second? Oh, I should wait till this thing stops playing because it's part of the record. Thank you for listening to uh, This Is sec. Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.